HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Cart Driver, Denver's home for wood-fired pizzas, fresh oysters, seasonal market plates, cocktails, and conversation. I'm Brian Kenny, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, they've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. To the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is James Molesworth. We'll talk to James about a lot of things, including Cali Cabs, Bordeaux, the Rhone, Loire, Port. Talk about Wine Spectator, wine, and a lot more. We got a lot to talk about. Um, during the show and for our weekly wine sip, we're going to taste a few wines, a Cali Pinot, and James brought in an interesting white from California, too. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. All right. Native New Yorker James Molesworth was surrounded by uh, wine growing up. After graduating college, he took a job at at a famed New York retailer specializing in Burgundy. He moved to the restaurant side as a cellar master and eventually sommelier at the legendary 21 Club. James joined Wine Spectator in 1997 as a tasting coordinator and was elevated to senior editor in 2004. He became a regular taster in 2000, and his tasting beat covers recently Cali Cabs, Bordeaux, the Rhone, Loire, Port, and South African wines. Did I leave anything out? Uh, A couple little things, the Finger Lakes. Finger Lakes. Um, but that pretty much covers it, yeah. Long Island? No. Long Island, I've done. Sherry, a couple other things. All right. So welcome to the show, James. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming in. Um, before we get started, give our audience a little background um, on your journey in life mm-hmm. and wine. That pretty much gets us to current. 
which is at the Wine Spectator right now. Yeah, well, uh, born in Flushing, Queens, and grew <laughs> okay. up in uh, Forest Hills. Uh, luckily, no New York accent. Uh, keep it pretty clean. Pretty good. Yeah, I uh, went to the University of Massachusetts at Amherst and got an anthropology degree. Perfect. Yep, and uh, fell in love with uh, jazz music there. was actually on the radio, hosted the radio show there, and, and ran the college radio station, which was a blast. And I came back to New York, and of course I needed a job, and for some reason a BA in anthropology and a love of jazz music got me absolutely nowhere, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, I took a job in a wine shop because I'd been living at home with my parents for a couple weeks at that point after finishing college, and that had already worn thin, so it was time to get out and get on my own. Right. And um, in fact, my dad was an English professor. He uh, was colleagues with the wife of Steve Tanzer uh, back then. Well, so he, yeah, he put in a call to Steve Tanzer, and uh, he put in a letter of recommendation for me when I applied for basically a cellar rat position at Burgundy Wine Company, which is you know yeah. to this day one of the great Still wine, one of the stores. great small boutique shops you got into in a Manhattan. Good place. Yep, yeah. Al Hodgkin was uh, my early mentor. I remember uh, he looked at my resume and kind of looked at me like. Why are you in here with a <laughs> recommendation from Steve Tanner? Right. So uh, yeah, that was a that was a good connection. I was there for uh, uh, a few years and learned a lot because um, you know uh, Al and his partner uh, Jerry Tashjian uh, they used to uh, serve lunch in the back of the store and it was just basically the three of us sometimes an extra person. But we would be back there and he'd always go down to the cellar and bring something up in a brown paper bag and just pour it. And he basically blind. said, "Yeah, blind." And he'd basically say, "Tell me about it." Now, of course. I figured it was Burgundy because that's all they sold at the time. But uh, you know, learning Burgundy blind that way uh, was a was a major uh, building block for me in the early days. I'd grown up with parents who loved wine. Wine was on the table, but right. all I knew was if you were in college and you drank wine, it was a little cooler than beer. So right. eventually, I started putting the knowledge together. Uh, left uh, Burgundy Wine Company, went to Twenty One Club. I was a cellar guy there for another, a bit. you know, very yep. cool, legendary Great, place. Uh, place. And uh, and then my education continued there with. Classic Bordeaux, classic German Riesling, classic Tuscany, classic Cali Cab, uh, the real, you know, famous benchmarks, wine room, famous, wine yeah, cellar. The wine cellar used to give the tours with the secret key and open right. up the, the bank vault door down there. That was cool. Right. And then I bumped into an old colleague of mine uh, who actually used to work at Burgundy Wine Company, Bruce Anderson. Uh, he had gone on to work at Wine Spectator. He was running the tastings uh, then in the, whatever that was, mid 90s, 96, 97. And he said, hey, so uh, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm working nights and opening wine. And he said, well, how'd you like to work days and open wine? And I said, deal. <laughs> so uh, I got out of the So Bruce gig. was your connect to getting into Yeah, Bruce into was my one. connection. That, and Bruce uh, is still there, right? Bruce is still there. Yeah. Our offices are next door to each other. Right. Um, so yeah, so he brought me on board, and that was 97. And uh, I started there as a tasting coordinator. I was basically doing the setting up the tastings for the other senior editors. But you got a chance to taste, and too, tell you, right? Yeah, at the end of the day, I would taste through everything and, okay. and see how the, the tasters had uh, you know, written their notes and, and scores. And um, it was a I'm total immersion on the job training. And after a few years, uh, somebody left, and they said, okay, next man up. And that's basically the rest is history from there. So. And that was... Uh, so I, st started I started in 97? Official, yeah, I started in 97. I think I was officially... Tasting somewhere in there, or two thousand somewhere 2000. in there, yeah. Right. And I, st I think I started with Loire and, and South Africa, and then I moved to Chile and Argentina. It's funny, Loire and South Africa probably back then were like they were, lower on yeah, the pole. Really Today, Loire, um, and we'll talk about yeah, that. Yeah, Chile and Argentina very, were nothings. Very happening places. Yeah, and all I, was, that. I was just happy to dive in and do something. All right, so we got you up to uh, current and all that. Um, before we talk about wine and a little about the wine spectator, I wanted to get your take on a few things because um, I think you're in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you how social media and the internet 
has affected wine and then take it to the next you know step and you're in traditional print in a way i mean yep. even though they've expanded is traditional uh, print in danger and then the third part yep. we could jump around are millennials affecting wine in any way that you know you can see and describe yeah so let's talk about social media first. yeah social media i mean uh I'm a big fan of social media, and I'm also slightly wary of it at all times. I think you have to treat it with a little bit of respect because what's it is the this, wary part? Well, I mean, you're kind of wrestling an octopus in a phone booth with this thing that that, that sometimes has great power, sometimes is easily abused, sometimes it's a mega time suck. Um, right. You know, there's all these all pros and points. cons to it. Yeah, and you know, we're our business model is we give away our opinion for a price because we think it's worth something. Social media, a lot of times, is free. Yeah, and and so sometimes you're you know you have to be careful of what you're giving away for free. I think, you know, building brand awareness, um, making wine sexy, cool, fun, uh, getting people interested is great. Uh, but ultimately, I think you know writers, I think musicians, I think artists should all be paid for their work, right. and we want to bring people to the magazine and our website ultimately. Right. So learning that push pull has been has been really interesting. Um, Any effect on print? I mean, a lot of magazines, legendary, you know. Yeah, I mean, glamour, shut down. Go at to- the risk of sounding immodest, you know, we knock on wood continue to do very well. Our readership is three and a half million now, which I think is more than basically all the other guys added up. It's great. Um, we are traditional print, uh, but we are in a niche. Uh, market essentially, you know, wine lifestyle. Um, there isn't much else out there, print-wise, you know, in competition with us. Um, but that notwithstanding, we can't just sit back and cruise. We got to make a good product, and I think we've worked very hard over the years to improve. But and that may that. lead to the last thing that I asked you about millennials. Yeah. Your core reader is probably not a millennial. It's guys like you on the lower end and me, you know, in the middle upper end that have, you know, baby boomers been around, collectors, yeah. a little disposable income. Sure. What happens when they all die? Uh, well, uh, we won't, we won't that want that to happen anytime soon. Right. Uh, women are a big part of our readership as well, uh, which is... Was uh, that always, or it's moved no, into I, I a mean, track? No, I mean, don't quote me on this, because I'm not on the business side of the magazine. I don't know the numbers, but the, the readership of women, as far it's as up. I understand, has grown uh, significantly. Um, you know, millennials, this is a tough call. If we cater to millennials, then we're trying to be all things to all people. We would love for them to read our magazine, um, but we still have a sort of base line of how we communicate a, a voice of the magazine, even though the individual editors are different. Um, would I like to bring millennials in? Absolutely. Um, I think ultimately as millennials you know, grow up and mature, they move higher up the rungs in disposable income, they get more space it's a natural in natural I think there's a natural gravitation yeah. to that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I agree that your wheelhouse is defined and you can't deviate too much. Um, one last thing, and it, it plays into all this stuff. Give me your take on natural wine and the natural wine movement. I think anything that makes people interested about wine and gets them drinking wine is great. Okay. That Good notwithstanding, um, I do have you know beefs with the natural wine movement per se in that it is a bit sort of reverse snobism in that they have walled themselves off uh, in regards to a style and a dogma and a belief that that in and of itself makes a wine better. 
the reality is there are good natural wines and there are bad natural wines. There are good wines that are grown organically and good wines that are grown sustainably, good wines that are grown conventionally, and right. bad wines from all those categories. Right. And if you sit there and say, just because the wine was done in this way, therefore it is better, I think you're, you're adhering to a dogma that is cutting off a lot of other wine out there. And I see a lot of pro problems with the natural wine movement because there are people who would fit their definition who aren't in the club. Right. There uh, are winemakers that are legendary. Winemakers that are legendary, but for some France reason, they don't get tagged with the natural wine label. They're or not allowed to come to the party. They I, do it know, anyway. And I don't get it. Yeah. Um, I, I like biodynamics, but it's not quantifiable. Right. Uh, I believe that anything that respects the land and puts the vineyard to the next generation in better condition than when you got it is great. But if you can't prove to me how it works, I'm going to question it. Right. And I think we need to question some of the things that the natural wine movement is saying. I think that's a good take on it. I just wanted to see where you were at. Um, all right, let's talk about what you do at Wine Spectator. Um, you're the senior editor. You're a lead taster. Um, I want to talk about two things. The tasting process, which mm -hmm. I think is a big deal yep. there and what you do. And, you know, you write. You know, I want to talk about how you develop stories. Tell everyone, let's go over the list again, what... You cover a specific list of regions. Yeah, the, uh, amongst the senior editors and other tasters at the magazine, we all specialize in specific regions. Right. It's not a tasting panel. There's not eight of us sitting around tasting one wine and right. averaging. And our, there's about our a support. dozen of you. Yeah. Um, so, and we have an office in uh, Napa and our office in New York. And so, the the team of editors basically has divvied up the the wine world uh, in various uh, pieces. I'm covering, as you said, Bordeaux, Rhone Valley, California Cabernet. That's the vast majority of my work the cali cabs or cali those cab. three okay, those three together okay and the to, cali cab is a recent acquisition yeah, uh, for you right correct. Uh, that, that came to my plate uh middle of this summer uh so that that's uh a big uh a big piece that has to get fit in um and then there's other little smaller regions and i don't mean to give them short shrift but just in terms of the category size south africa port as we discussed, Loire, things like that. Yeah, volume um, and yeah. sales and interest right. coverage and all that. I mean, I, I agree So, yeah. So each editor has a specific region. Um, all the reviews um, that are in the magazine are from blind tastings. We so you taste blind? We taste blind. Okay. Uh, single blind. So we know appellation and vintage, but we don't know producer and price. Okay. And uh, all those tastings, are, with the exception of Bordeaux, all the tastings are conducted in the office, either in New York or Napa. Why is that? You make the trip to Bordeaux? Yeah, for Bordeaux, for the en primeur season, for instance, the barrel samples, I taste those in Bordeaux, but but we collect the barrel samples and we taste at a neutral site with wine spectator staff. So I'm not reviewing wines based on going to the chateau and tasting with the winemaker in front of me. Is that because Bordeaux is so big and vast in order to taste out of the barrel, you got to go to them? Yeah, and also, I mean, the logistics of shipping barrel samples to New York right. for an individual taste, that's just not something we want to deal right. with. Right, right. There was just recently a tasting in New York for the 2016 board. Yeah, the UGC comes through and yeah. they do their annual tour, yeah. and, and there was good uh, buzz about that. All right, so when you, I think people would be interested in this, when you sit down and taste a wine, so now we know it's blind in mm -hmm. the bag, you know the vintage, you know, it's going to be Bordeaux, Cali, or it right. could be from the Loire. What, what, what are the criteria that you use to judge wine? I'm sure everyone's are different. Yeah, I mean, uh, amongst the editors, I think we have a, a team concept. There's definitely a wine spectator approach. Right. But each editor obviously has their own take on it. I, I think, I, I believe in my colleagues in that, you know, if Bruce Anderson gives a Burgundy 90 points, I'm going to be with him on that. The reality is if I taste the 20 wines he tastes, 
there's going to be some variability, but he knows the region far better than I am, and I'm going to defer to him. And, and I think you know that goes both ways. But in terms of criteria, I think we're looking for the same criteria that most people are looking for in wine. Um, typicity is something that we look for. Complexity, um, you know, how does the wine fit in vis-a-vis -vis all of the wines from that vintage, from that appellation, and then extrapolating further out other vintages um, and other regions. I think a California Syrah that rates a, a, a 92 points should qualitatively be the same as a Rhone, a Northern Rhone that rates 92 points, even if they are completely different stylistically. And to me, that's a big part about tasting blind. It's quality first, style second. So there may be wines that I personally rate well that are not my personal style preference, but, but I have to quality. tip my cap and say, that's a great wine in that style. And then conversely, I think you know there are wines in all styles that are not that great, and, and then we have to take so a So the quality on goes back to length, depth, complexity, yeah. all the things that make a wine exactly, good. Exactly, yeah. They don't have to be similar, like you said. In right, Salah. and granted, wine tasting or wine judging, wine critiquing is subjective, but we try to be as objective as possible, and that's right. why we do the blind tasting. So clear something up for me. You talked about Bruce. Bruce tastes Burgundy. Does that mean you taste wines outside of your beat? Are you tasting Burgundies, or is just not enough? Well, when Bruce is done at the end of the day, and, and okay. I see what he's unbagged, it's right. nice to go over you to his table sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But no, I, I try to keep up on other things. Yeah. The reality is I... You're in the biz. I, I, I'm in the biz, and I like to taste yeah. a lot of different things, but Bordeaux, Rhone, Cali Cab, that keeps me pretty busy. All right, so tell me this. You've been tasting Bordeaux for years. You just, uh, just jumped on Cali Cabs. Mm -hmm. Tell me, are there distinct differences? You're talking about something that's been around hundreds of years, very nuanced, layered. You're right. talking about something that's still fighting, you know, for its reputation. Is it still ageable? Right. Um, are, are there differences? Yeah, I mean, there, I mean, there's huge differences, which is what makes it so exciting. But there's also, uh, you know, a lot of uh, similarities between them as well. I, the, the argument that, for instance, Bordeaux has become... Uh, homogenized or too ripe or in the warm too many warm vintages or it becomes too california like if you take a flight of bordeaux from let's say 09 a warm vintage a, a warm vintage with a lush you know fruit right. profile and you put them next to a bunch of california Similar. wines bordeaux tastes like bordeaux california cabernet tastes like california cabernet they still stand apart very clearly that's not to say that there isn't an occasional california cabernet that does a very good job of mimicking a bordeaux and maybe vice versa but the Venn diagram, the middle slice of that Venn diagram is very tiny. These are really two distinct categories. So you said two things before. Quality. And style. You, and style. Yeah. So the styles are different, for sure, which you just said. Right. The quality is good. The quality the is California good. The California quality. Yeah, mm -hmm. I have great respect for California Cabernet. And, and as I've gotten back into it officially for Wine Spectator, um, it's been nice to, to see just how good the wines are. Um, you know, I, as I said, I kept light tabs on them over the years, but right. now that I'm diving back in, it's right. like, wow, you know, there's a lot of really good stuff here. Um, That's why it's it, great to taste the other wines. Cause yeah. when you jump in, you, you know, you have a, I was going to ask you this later, but let me ask you now, cause it makes sense. Um, would you agree that we're going through a period of restraint or dialing back? Ironically, when I wrote the question, I picked up the times today and Eric, Asimov talked about Chateauneuf de Pops mm -hmm. kind of dialing back. Is that happening? Is that happening in uh, Napa? Um, Is it happening in the Rhone? Is um, Bordeaux? You know, I'm always careful with these 
sweeping generalizations because for every producer that's dialing back, there's another one who's pushing the envelope. Um, are there general trends? Yes. I do think, I'll take it from the California Cabernet angle first. I do think after vintages like 97, um, that that's what Don Weaver yeah, called like, yeah, jumping put, the shark. Yeah, right? the, that vintage did jump the it was shark. Big and bold, super and big, accessible. super right, yeah. super rich. Uh, some of the wines have not proven to have stood the test of time. Um, I do think that there has been a conscious decision by producers to dial back. However, there are other factors in play, really important factors, and one of those in, in California Cabernet is the fact that much of that vineyard base has been replanted since Phylloxera. And so in 97, and in that period, a lot of those vineyards were quite young, and they produced a fairly precocious, uh, easy ripening, powerful uh, you know, fruit profile. Now that those vineyards have hit age 20, which is old by Napa Valley floor right. standards, those vineyards are a little more self-regulating. The viticulture has changed a little bit. There's a lot going on there rather than just winemakers sitting around a table saying, hey, let's dial it back. Right. It's not that simple. That's sort of a natural. Yeah. It's a, in, in a young wine region, you're, you're going to have young vines. Right. Now and there's still starting also to plenty of new brands popping up in California Cabernet. Where, you know, their, their first vintage out of the gate is a, is a big blockbuster style. I mean, people are going to produce that. Is this what people want? Or, I mean, are people tired of opulent well, think, over the top Cali cabs. Yeah, I think some people are. They are looking but I think for some, some Bordeaux, love them. right? I, I mean, I love Chablis. I love lean, minerally whites. And every now and then, I go, you know what? I just want a nice oak bomb Chardonnay. Buttery Sorry, oak, but that's right. what I want. I mean, you know, right. and I think uh, consumers probably are a little more open to that. I think uh, you or I and other people who are really into wine uh, from a professional angle probably dial down into our likes right and and we get a little pigeonholed ourselves i think the regular consumer is is much broader open approach to the wines they want to drink yeah you know i cut my teeth on cali cabs and i still love them but i'm kind of moving away and opening up right you know restraint isn't a bad thing and all of that but i i I agree with you yeah and and then you know you can you can extrapolate that to bordeaux where you know the garagiste movement of of the mid-90s was the one they they blew the doors off everything and then what they did was they showed people, you know, maybe what's a little too far. But in doing that, they also really forced competition, especially from the left bank guys. Right. And those guys have really dialed down in terms of their vineyards, breaking them in into smaller parcels and smaller vinification right. lots. And the finer detail is there. Now, is Pavie different from Fisiac? Is different from Cheval Blanc? Of course. Some guys are still making a, a big glossy style and some guys are, are doing something a little more elegant. But those are three great wines, qualitatively. Right, yeah. right. All good ones. So how many wines do you taste in about a year? Uh, actual formal reviews that get into the, the magazine is about 3,500 or 4,000. But in and above, above that, I wouldn't even know where to Double, start triple that? I. So you're saying yeah. 3,500 wines that you tasted and you taste more those work their way into stories or tasting list or ratings or whatever. Well, no, for instance, I could I could go to a domain in the Rhone and we could taste through his barrels or her barrels, you know, all afternoon. None of those wines are finished. Some of them may not even be assembled blend, Got you it. know, that sort of stuff. Got it. That can really blow the numbers off the door. But like serious bottled finished right. wines, we're looking at 4,000 a year for reviews. It's a lot. Yeah. Um, all right, let's move over to the writing part. Um you know, you have a prominent position in the magazine pretty much every month. Um, how do you develop your storylines? 
I mean, is is it an assignment? Is it an inspiration? Um, you know, is it a schedule? Like, you know, every well, November we, we're yeah, doing I mean, Napa. We do, we do have some things that are locked in, like the California Cabernet Report is always November 15th, so there's some things okay. that are regular. But so this coming November will be your first? Yeah, this coming November 15th, this year will be my first okay. California Cabernet Report. So uh, so I've got work to do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which means uh, a lot of traveling back and forth. Yeah, I'll be going back and forth from, okay. from uh, New York to California a lot. But, you know, it's, it is a, there's a collaborative effort because uh, we have annual meetings and, and we all work uh, together um, and we bounce ideas off each other and, and try to come up with ideas and people that we think might be uh, interesting features and, and so on. But then also, you know, the reality is when it comes to Bordeaux, I'm the one there, you know, deep in Bordeaux and I have to write that vintage analysis every year. And um, so approaching that is, is something that I'm kind of on my own for um, versus a feature profile where I might go to my fellow editors and say, you know, help me get a storyline here. Right. You know, what's the angle? What do we want? Do we want to make it more business oriented? Do we want to make it more personal oriented? I mean, things like that uh, right. are definitely part of the, the team approach at, at Spectator. Do you, uh, do you have the opportunity from time to time where just the story seems so compelling to you? You could... Yeah, there are times where the story writes itself, and there's some times where, okay, the assignment is write a profile on person A, and you're sitting there going, oh, man, like, I I can't get my opening. Like, I I don't have the quote I need, or I don't, you know, I need, I need, I can't get started here. Um, And then sometimes they they just write themselves. Yeah. Right. Uh, I did a cover profile on on Chateauneuf, and and I went in thinking, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And then I went to Chateauneuf, and I said I asked a couple of the demands. I said, "Hey, how about we all go out to dinner? You all have your your dads uh, who made Chateauneuf, and you guys make Chateauneuf. So why don't you guys bring a bottle of wine from your dad's era, and a bottle of wine that you made, and let's sit around and, and talk about it." And we had this fantastic dinner. It was about three hours long. Stories around the table, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I got more color, and quotes, and things in, in the three hours talking to two generations from yeah, four that, major domains. It was just you know that's a great story. It's a line. great way to yeah to get deep into the history and at wine spectator the the mantra is very simple it's it's educate and entertain that's what we want to do for our readers um wine is is a difficult thing but it's also cool to learn about and you know we're never all going to be experts and and i don't even think the experts are experts because there's always another vintage there's always an it's just endless so educating and entertaining is really what we want to do did you walk out of there noticing a distinct difference between the generational wines or Oh, for sure. Yeah. Some guys carried on yeah, the I march. Mean, just, Other guys took yeah, their own. techniques, who was using stems, who wasn't, things like that that can really affect the wine, not to mention the the uh, the blends, which leaned heavier and heavier to, to Grenache in more recent years. Uh, right. Whereas in the, in, the, in the past, they had a higher percentage of the white varieties in the blends and more Morved and more Sanso and Cunois, things like that. Grenache wasn't as important. 25, so, 30 years ago as it is today. Chateauneuf de Pop is the southern Rhone. Correct. There were great ones from right. the north, from mm-hmm. the south. That's the classic southern Rhone. Yep. And the prominent grapes, and you could blend a lot of them, are what and how many? Don't, uh, don't list them all. There's 13. Right, good. Thank you for the, not the putting three me on the spot. Four, you, you know, you said uh, Grenache. <laughs> yeah, Grenache, Syrah, Morved are the main, three main reds, along with uh, Cunois, uh, Senso. Right. And then the the whites are... Um, like Reyes makes 100% yeah, there's, Grenache right, and other you can, guys. You can make it from a blend, or you can make it from 100% of one varietal. Anywhere, you can make 100% Morved Chateauneuf right. if you wanted to. Uh, right. Grenache is king now, though. Right. Um, so you've... I guess it's not like you've been tagged, but 
you've covered the big, bold reds of the world. Yep. You know, I would put Cali Cab there now. For sure. Certainly Bordeaux, the Rhone North and South are these, you know, very big, beefy wines. Uh, I think the Loire... Um, is, you know, maybe the exception there. Yeah, the Loire's my, my breather wine. Right. <laughs> Taste all Shannon, as Pascaline Lapeldia <laughs> says, Shannon, 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 yeah, exactly. let's take that break. <laughs> um, let's talk about, talk to my audience. And listen, you and I could sit here for two hours and just talk about Bordeaux or Cali or even the Loire. Let's talk about, you know, the beat that you cover. Let's talk about some interesting wine stories, winemakers, mm-hmm. Um, and keep value in mind, mm-hmm. you know, that are interesting or fun or compelling or exciting to you. And, you know, we don't have to go on forever, but give yeah. me, you know, a few wines, regions, areas. Uh, well, one of the things when, when people ask me about the wines I taste for Spectator and how I can do different regions, I say, you know, the Rhone has my heart. Bordeaux has my respect. Okay. Uh, and now I got to find something to say about California because I just got that. I got to weave that in. But, you know, the Rhone has my heart because that's that was the first major region I got at Spectator about 15 some odd years ago. I think 02 was my first official vintage. And, of course, there's no reviews on any O2s because it was a, a washout. <laughs> right. So I had to wait funny. for O3 to actually start. You didn't hit the ground it. running. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there, there's something about the soul of the Rhone. It's it, small domains, family-owned and run. Um, I'm, I'm sheepishly at the point where now I have seen the generational changes at many right. of these domains. So that means, dinner you talked about. Yeah, I'm about. dating myself at this point. Um, but that, to me, there are soulful wines because these, these are really, uh, you know, the, the not that this doesn't happen in other regions, it does often, but to me it's the definition of handmade, family, small, you know, focused, detailed winemaking. So the north and south are very distinct. Yep. Grapes they use, style and all that. First question is, do you have a preference? Uh, do you have a love? That's a tough one. You know, every, every Does that time incriminate I lean a anybody? Bit to Sarai, then I lean back a little bit. To so they're Kosh. both great. Yeah, they're both great, and and that difference is what makes them great. Um, but you know, for value, uh, the Southern Rhone it probably has the, the edge on the Northern Rhone. Uh, the Southern Rhone is is much bigger. Uh, there's flatter terroirs that are Give easier work. Give me some. You know, regions is it like Gigandas? Or? Yeah, well, uh, actually, I would start with a vintage. Right now, 2016 is probably the new benchmark vintage for the Southern Rhone. Go into a store and look at Go Southern Go into Rhone's. a store. You can, okay. I, I never want to say you can buy any 16 or buy any wine from any vintage, but generally, 2016s are going to give you foolproof buying. And then the other key is you look for Cote de Rhone, Cote de Rhone Village um, from which is Northern Rhone. No, that's Southern Rhone. That's Southern. But Rhone, you look for those from top Chateauneuf producers. So it's it's like the table wine of the great guy. So in a right. good vintage with a good maker. Exactly. So it, a dom- like a domain like Santa Prefer with, with a winemaker. S-T-P-R-E-F-E-R-T. Correct, yeah. Give Isabel me one Ferrando more. makes a Chateauneuf that's you know, $50, $60, $70 a bottle. She also makes a Cote d'Aron that's 20 bucks a bottle. Okay. It's the same grape, same vinification technique. The terroir is just outside the Appalachian border of Chateauneuf. So it doesn't have the name prestige. It doesn't have the, the you know, that... Um, hierarchy of uh, that chutzpah hierarchy, but it's a right. delicious wine. Th- those are the that's how you find value. All right, so let's we're going to take a break in a minute, but before, before we do, and I have a few questions when we come back from the break, I want to subject you to our wine list. We'll taste a little wine. Let's give the Loire a little love. Okay. So tell me what you love and what's exciting about the Loire. The Loire is probably like the hotbed for organic or biodynamic. Right. Viticulture, a lot of young domains that have popped up. And I would say it mirrors the Rhone in that small, family-run, hands-on, detail-oriented, um, probably more diverse than the Rhone in terms of its appellations and, it, and its 
you know, Chateauneuf has 13 varieties, but Chateauneuf is Chateauneuf. Right. Whereas you have much, uh, you have just as much of an interesting melange of varieties from the Loire, which covers all the way from just west of Paris all the way out to the Atlantic and, right. and, and Muscadet. So again, 16 great vintage in the Loire. I'm just starting to taste some 17s. I don't. I'm not quite convinced that they have quite the the zing or the or the, the so detail of 16. The so 16 is where you want to be for now. And yeah, I, I mean. The region is so broad; it's hard to dial down on any any one producer. But um, you know, Chenin Blanc from Vouvray. Uh, you have a number of producers Muscadet. there. Muscadet, yeah. Um, Sancerre's and and Puy Fumés are Sauvignon Blanc based. That's great stuff. And then you can get you know great Cab Franc, right? And, and a vintage like sixteen, where there is some ripeness and it doesn't have quite the lean, leafy character that it usually has. I think sixteen's a good Cab Franc vintage. Sixteen's yeah, are really nice. Cool. All right. So we're James. We're going to take a quick break. I'm talking to James Molesworth. James is the uh, senior editor, a senior editor at Wine Spectator. Um, when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about a few more things. I'm going to subject James to our wine list. We'll take a little, uh, take a few sips of some wines, and uh, we'll take it from there. You're listening to the Grape Nation. I'm Sam Ben Ruby. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Cart Driver, Denver's home for wood-fired pizzas, fresh oysters, seasonal market plates, cocktails, and conversation. Tucked in a 640-square-foot shipping container space in the heart of Denver's Rhino neighborhood, Cart Driver is the perfect place to stop in for an Italian-style spritz, Prosecco on tap, and a wide variety of tinned fish. Open for lunch, dinner, community hour, and late night seven days a week, Cart Driver is here for you with fresh, domestically sourced ingredients and, above all, hospitality. Learn more at cart-driver.com. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, James Molesworth. James is a senior editor at Wine Spectator. And James, I want to ask you about a few more things that you cover and you have the experience. Um, let's talk about port for a second. Okay. I was just in Portugal over the holidays. Isn't it great? I didn't realize that like every port house is next to each other yes. across. I mean, it, it's if just, you want to talk about a wine region where you can go for tourism and do like terrific. everything at once. The whole country, the I Douro, mean, port. We went to Alentejo. I mean, it's just a great wine place. All right. So... Agree, Port recently celebrated some pretty good vintages? Yeah, the 16 vintage ports. Again, that vintage keeps popping up, but uh, the 16 vintage ports have just been released, and they're really spectacular. So um, if you want to collect a little port, buy the 16 yeah, and lay so them down? Here's my, my thing for millennials. You may be 30, 35 now, maybe 27, whatever, and you're, you're probably not thinking about the wines you want to drink in 25 years. But when I was 27, uh, 28, 29, 30, the 97s came out, and I said, well... I better buy some of these because I don't know where I'm going to be in 30 years, but I'm going to figure that I probably want to drink some port. And I bought a few cases, and it was one of the smartest things I ever did because it is the wine that takes the longest you to come think around. Ahead, you got to think ahead, So, you know, I would encourage people to just, whatever your annual wine budget is, you know, just kick a little bit to vintage port and put that stuff away, and you'll be really happy. 
my it resonated with my oldest son Benjamin. You know, we were just sitting on the deck, staring at port, smoking a cigar, mm-hmm. and he's like, "This is just unbelievable." Yeah, no, I, it's, you know, I can't drink this all day or to get hammered, it, but sitting here, no, relaxing. it's one of those wines though. That, you know, most people don't think of regularly, but then when they get a, a glass, why don't they we go, drink they go, more? Why don't port? we drink more port? Yeah. Why? Um, just because it's misunderstood, heavy? Just I give me think, a quick yeah, explanation. I, I on think that. Uh, wine drinking in America is still relatively young for all intents and purposes, uh, you know, barely two generations old. Pretty much. Um, and I don't think, um, I, I think everything revolves around the, the main course on the table. The dessert culture, that sort of stuff do- doesn't really exist here as strongly as it does in some other places, nor does the length of the meal here exist the way it does in Europe. Nobody has a, a three or four hour lunch in the middle of the week, in the middle of the day. Less and less now. Less and less now. Back to that millennial thing and all yeah. that, you know, quick and, in, quick out. Right, and 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 I think port is, is, anytime you're adding wines onto the back end of the meal, you're adding that much more time to savor and digest right. and, and relax and Which talk. even plays for the sauternes and all that. People are just not as focused on that yeah, dessert and, wine. And, uh, and, and a sauternes is a great example, too. Every time I pour a glass of sauternes for people, they go, man, this stuff is so good. Like, I know. Why don't I drink more of it? It's yeah. just it's, the yeah. perfect thing after a big meal. Yeah, and, and, uh, and I think we've got to break out of the, you know, port with blue cheese and sauternes with foie gras. We do need to break away from those a little right. bit. You know, sauternes goes great with fresh oysters, and people always look at me funny when I say that, but... Trust me, I've tried it, and it's a great pairing. And, uh, you know, a little glass of port at 2 in the afternoon in between meals, uh, especially on a winter day sitting by the fire with a book. I mean, why not? If you want to talk seasonal or weather, this is a perfect time. Yeah, you know, I mean, port, maybe port, port is to winter what rosé is to summer. I, I do think you could drink them year-round. But, yeah, for right now, I, I mean, it's snowing outside right now. I, I want Man, port. <laughs> I pulled you out on a tough day. <laughs> I got you out of the office on a tough one. But it's clearing up now. I'll send you home in good weather. All right. Um, after 16, any other good uh, vintages in the decade? Uh, 11, 11 is the, probably the current benchmark for, for vintage port. and then So uh, if you could find 11s. You can find them. I mean, the, the, the secondary market for port, the, the prices tend to not increase that much. And you can find 85s and 94s and, and 97s. Yeah, they're not crazy that are not crazy. They're essentially burgundy, this, let's say. Yeah, they're sometimes even less than the current release price. And I would say, you know, if you want to dip your toe in, you, you go to an auction... Uh, you find some 85, you get a couple bottles, you take those home and see, well, is this stuff that I really like? And then extrapolate forward, today's ports are much, much better than they were 25 years right. ago. Um, so you're going to be getting even that much more than an 11 or a 16. While I have you here, and you know, I knew enough about it, but got a little deeper into it when I was in Portugal, just tell me why people should look at Tawny or Ruby's versus the vintage port well tawnies are are cask aged okay whereas the the rubies which are ruby actually includes vintage port in that category because those are the ones that are bottle aged essentially right uh so tawnies i think are fantastic wines because they're cask aged uh sometimes they're blended they're often non-vintage blends like 10 20 30 year blends they'll be marked they're marked 20 30 40 uh and then there are there are wines called colhetas which are basically vintage tawnies so there's a vintage year on them and it's a single harvested right so it's just the 85 or whatever. Um, so these wines are, you know, obviously they're they're much, they're released when they're significantly old, a lot like traditional Rioja, for instance. So you're right. getting something that's ready to drink. Um, they last. Not cheap, right? Uh, you can find some. Value. You know, the 30 and 40 year olds, yeah, and the older right. ones, you're going to have to pay because of the rarity. But a good 10 year or 20 year tawny is not that expensive. And they last a few weeks. So you open it up, you keep them in the fridge, you serve them a little chilled. And after that first five minutes in the glass, they're at perfect temperature. Good for the winter, good for great the for holidays. The yeah, great for an aperitif. I I'd love tawny port. You like tawny as much as vintage? 
That's, that's kind of like okay, but northern, that's like Northern Rhone versus Southern Rhone. But it's Rhone. got you thinking, so there's serious consideration for <laughs> yeah, both, which if, is if fair. If I can have a glass of both, I'll be happy. So we just talked about port. You know, look for uh, vintage port 2016 being a good example. But also look at tawnies. And like we said, there's 10, 20s, 30s, 40s. Yeah, and I'm just going to give a plug again to, to go to Portugal. Uh, everyone over there is... is basically fully bilingual so you don't have to worry about speaking Incredible. Portuguese uh, it's absolutely gorgeous it is really hospitable inexpensive, food. Uh, inexpensive the food is fantastic the wines are um, and then when you're in Villanova de Gallo and, and, and Porto the two towns right across the river every single port house has, has their house there in a tasting room and some of them have you know, wine bar, small. And they're place. next like, to each other. They're all next to each other. It's like bar hopping. It. It's bar hopping <laughs> like in on college. And it's, it, it's just a fantastic experience. I love that. I had a great time there last summer. All right. So quickly tell me when you're not drinking wines on your beat, which we talked about a few times, what outside of the beat do you like? Uh, well, I still have a love of Burgundy. Uh, okay. Which clearly goes back to Classic. my first gig in the business. Uh, I still uh, drink uh, Riesling, though probably not as much as I used to, but I still have a bit of German Riesling in my cellar, which I love. Um, I do drink California Rhone varietals, California Pinots, and California Shards. I like to keep, keep tabs on that stuff. While I have you here, give me a couple of things that are good or break through to you or... Uh, I mean, I you... mean the, the kick I'm on lately is the Certas brand, uh, C-E-R-I-T-A-S, right. uh, which they is make... a, a boutique-y uh, Great Pinots, shard of Pinot cap, producer shard. in the Sonoma Coast. And I just, when I see those, I just grab whatever's on the shelf. I just got on their mailing list. All right. So kudos. Grab whatever. Yeah. That's C-E-R-I-T-A-S. Yeah. And I've just been loving those wines because they really have a, a freshness and, and a minerality that I love. But they don't skimp on fruit. And they're, they're all, um, I don't know if they're all, but most of them are single vineyard bottlings. Extremely yeah. distinct. There's a house style, which I like, but each one has a very different expression, and, and I love when wineries do that. Yeah, I'm starting to drink through them. Um, probably bring a bottle in soon, taste yeah. it on air. All right, we're going to subject you to our wine list. Our wine list is five questions. We okay. ask the same five questions to everyone. Uh-oh. Don't overthink them. They're okay. simple. All right. You can handle this. Okay. They're simple. Don't dwell on them. Let's move past them because we want to taste a little wine too. Right. So you may have answered this, but get a little more specific. What are you drinking now? Forget work. You know what's on your, what's in your fridge, what's on your table, what's right. interesting you. What are you drinking now? It could be uh, seasonal. There's always like three or four bottles of champagne in my fridge. Okay, well, That's sh- just... the first time champagne came up. Yeah, great uh, wine. I do love champagne. Uh, How do you use it? If, for meals, uh, I use it, uh, yeah, as a starter, and I'll use it as, as a late night finisher too. When you, okay. you still want something fresh and invigorating, I do tend to like. Uh, I've been gravitating to the drier styles. Okay, um, you got a maker or two you love. I mean, look, I'm not shy. I do like some of the, oh, my God, the big houses. I like Runar. Um, okay. I like Krug. You know, I, li- I like uh, brands and, and houses like that, but I, I do love... Um, Those are good guys. Moe Noel uh, Ledru. I like, uh, I do like Agripar at times. Um, that, that Venus bottling from Agripar is, is a smoke show. Um, Rotorer is great. You know, Rotorer is... Bio- now, here's... A, now, now that I think about this... Good example. Rotorer is like a big house, right? So sometimes they don't get a lot of respect. They got the most... Uh, uh, the largest uh, biodynamic vineyard base in France. They can't get any respect from the natural wine crowd. Right. The, and the wines are terrific. And, right. and I don't understand. There's the perfect example the perfect of somebody example of, who's been doing it yeah. and just doesn't And Jean-Baptiste Lecan's a great guy. So, uh, you know, but why would you not want to drink some of those wines? All right. Those are good answers. And just to remind everyone, we're going to post uh, James's answers on our social media. 
um, so that you could uh, look them up and try some of them. All right. Does James Molesworth have a favorite wine and food pairing? Uh, Is there you something? Know, I'm, I'm only going to go here for this one time on radio because normally my, my stock answer is I don't play favorites. I, I try to be fair to everyone. I don't want people. Wine and food pairing? Who are you playing favorites well, with? The chicken? Because you know, I, 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 I am a part of the magazine. The magazine, I represent the magazine. The magazine comes first. So okay. I, I don't play favorites like, you know, I only like this style or only like that because I don't want to draw a from. I didn't push you to yeah, that. You didn't I push think... me. But I will just say if you give me a Rhone wine, north or south, with grilled lamb, I'm pretty much in heaven. Okay. Yeah. So uh, a nice, heavy Rhone. You said yeah. northern? North or south. Uh, okay, a north Chateauneuf, or south. A Chateauneuf, a Cornas, a Cote Roti, a Gigolas, with, with lamb. That's Boom. a great answer. Done. All right. I'm asking you this, and again, I don't want you to be inclusive, exclusive, incriminate, but do you have a favorite wine restaurant or bar? When you go out and you know somebody's going to do it well, has the service, the variety that you're comfortable at, yeah. are there places, you know, you're you're a New York-based guy. Yeah, I mean, look, New York is an embarrassment of riches and when it comes to wine service and wine Great lists. Great people. And, and, uh, are you comfortable at some places? I am. I mean, uh, it's probably no secret from my social media that Nice Matan is kind of my, my canteen. Right. I think Along, Avi, yeah, Avi Ram you is used the to wine live director up there. there. I used to live up there. Avi Ram does a terrific job. Uh, the wine list is deep in old vintages. Uh, classics. Uh, I think people in the neighborhood know that, but people outside yeah, of the neighborhood little, may not. You know, it's a bit of a destination. Next time you go to downtown. see a concert at the Beacon, perfect. go around the There's corner to East Beacon. Yeah. Give me something else. Uh, Porterhouse. I, I saw their list the other day, and they really beefed it up. And that place is I was killing just it. There. Uh, Michael Lamonico. You know, I worked under Michael Lamonico at Twenty One Club. Was he at twenty? Yeah, twenty three, twenty four years ago. So and he was and the go, windows on the world windows guy. On the guy. Um, great sweetheart, right? He's a super sweet guy, and I love to give him kudos. I think he's doing a great job. But you know, there's a lot of great wine programs out out there. I mean, the, the guys at the grill and and, and the pool are, are doing a great job. But you know, some of these places are expensive. So right, where do you go for value, Bo? You know. Marseille in the theater district, you know, they've got old bandoles on the list. Decent there. wine list, yeah, decent Marseille? wine list, yeah. And, That's a good one. Um, That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, and, Great. I'm, and I've been digging, um, yeah, there's just, like I said, it's an embarrassment of riches. There's a lot of good wine directors uh, around Manhattan. All right, you don't have to answer it now, but right. when we wrap up the show, I'm going to ask you about your uh, DJ career, and okay. that encompasses another venue, yeah. too. All right, but let's finish this. I don't know if you can answer this, but you got to try. All right. Give me one, give me two. What Do you have a favorite all-time wine? And I always say this. It doesn't have to be the rarest, the most expensive. It's become more experiential. Right. Is there something that, well, you know... Well, if we're talking experiences, there are certainly wines that, I'm not embarrassed to say, have literally brought a tear to my eye when I smelled them or, or Give me a couple. Uh, there was a magnum of 59 Margot on the back <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> porch of Margot under the moonlight. <laughs> 59 I mean, that, Margo. You know, that was, uh, was kind of nice. Now, uh, I'm not a wine dummy, but I'm not an expert. Yeah. Was 59? 59 is pretty special. It, it was yeah. a special year? Yeah. Okay. And we had, uh, I also had 45 Mouton from Magnum with Baroness Philippine when she 45, was I know. Was yeah, 45 great. is the legendary uh, vintage. But, uh, I mean, I've had some old vintages of Chave that are spectacular. Uh, uh, the wrong. Uh, you know, 74s from California. I've been lucky to have Maya Kama. The heights is off the charts. So those are, I guess, the classic. Those Listen, that's exactly what I was looking for. Right. You know, it doesn't have to boil down to one answer. There were a couple of wines that were not. Yeah. All right, last question, and I think you could uh, handle this. I ask everyone, recommend your best wine around 15 20 bucks retail. 
and I'm looking for a red. I'm looking for a white. Right. I beat this line to a pulp. My kids are in their mid-late 20s. They're yep. starting to make money. They're going to a party. They can't bring crappy wines. Okay. They're not spending nine. They're not spending 50. But what are they walking in that's cool for 15, 20? Okay. Uh, just because only because it's the first. This is like word association. So the first one that pops into my head is the, um, the Capburn Gascatone. Wait, which is the say that again? It's Capburn Gascaton. C A P B E R N, and then Gascaton. So I'm going to probably butcher this. G A S Q U E T O N. Gascaton. From this is made by Calon Segur. It's the property they own, literally right Calon across Segur, the street. Calon Segur Bordeaux. Yeah, Calon Segur Bordeaux. It's okay. Cru Bourgeois. It's, it's a large property. It retails for about fifteen or twenty bucks. Perfect. And man, I'm telling you, it really delivers. There's your red. Uh, I, I'll spell everything. Not a, not a ten-year ager, but just you want the Bordeaux profile in spades it's, it's just a great it's, one it's perfect give me a white uh white uh this one's going to be sneaky it's probably about 20 25 bucks now but so bear with me but the white Cote de rhone from chateau saint combe in gigondas s-t-c-o-m s-t-c-o-s-m-e saint combe combe Cosme. Cosme, Cosme, yeah. Okay. Um, so they make a white uh, Cote de Rhone that's just uh, a delight. It's got a lot of claret in it, which is a great grape. Uh, great uh, yeah, value. Yeah, great I value. I think that's the first time anybody ever uh, recommended that. You know, white Rhones are, are sneaky. Uh, they're only about 4 or 5% of the production of the Rhone Valley, but they are some of the greatest white wines in the world, and, and nobody really knows that much about them, so you can get away with some great value with White Roan. Those are great ones, and like I said, we'll post them. Thomas, we got to wrap up the show, but before we wrap up, we're going to throw a little wine over the tongue. Uh, when you walked in, I handed you a glass of uh, Rivers Marie, Thomas Brown's yep. own project in California, Sonoma Coast 2014. What would you think of it? Uh, you, you handed it to me as I literally raced in. I know you were late. You got stuck in traffic, but we did show. it. <laughs> we did it. Um, that, uh, you know, I would have guessed a little burgundy actually. I mean, I was definitely in Pinot right away, but I thought burgundy cause it has that slightly smoky, perfumey sandalwood aspect to it. A little herbaceous, little wood spice, not a super fruit bomb, but it's, it's somewhat got of some a fruit. compliment. Yeah. You know, for a Cali. Um, all right, but, let's but freshness is there. It's a nice wine. Okay. Let's quickly talk about the wine that you brought in. Okay. Uh, I ask all my guests if they'd like to to bring in a wine. We'll quickly taste on air and evaluate. Um, every week we taste a different wine on air for our weekly wine sip this week. Uh, James brought in a so brought in my, Helen Keplinger. Yeah, Keplinger. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to bring in something that was not for my beats, um, but connected in a way so this is her white roan blend not from your beats means you don't cover yeah i don't shark. officially cover this so right. I, now you i can cover california but i can not take shark. my critic hat off and i like, like this that is what go I out of your um, box and comfort zone go ahead yeah so this is uh uh her el dorado is the name of the cuvee is the 2015 under the helen keplinger label under the keplinger, keplinger. Label. and it's a blend of i'm looking about uh, viognier roussin and grenache blanc so mm. those are three grapes that i love it's a roan uh, it's a white Rhone blend. Yep, the ABA is this year. All right, so let's holes. evaluate it. Okay. Color-wise, you got that, uh, you know, kind of nice yellow. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about the nose quickly. I like it because it's a mix of tropical and orchard fruits. So it kind of hints that it's going to be opulent, but there's a freshness there, too. There's some honeysuckle and some jasmine notes that give it a, a little zing. Is that the nose or the palate? On the nose. Okay. And then I think that follows through on the palate. There's a there's a juicy richness in the middle. Let's it, go mouthfeel first. It's a pretty... It's not shy. I'll give no. you that. No. It's, it's a, it's, it's it's a fruit-driven wine. Yeah. I mean, it's but, got a full mouthfeel. Right. But just as you think like, oh, this might loll off, it actually has a little 
blast of detail at the end there, a little floral mm. lift, a little freshness. So give um, me the palate. Palate to me is uh, a bit of melon, a bit of green almond, a bit of yellow apple. Uh, and then at the end, you get a little star fruit and, and, and acacia and, and some zing to it, which I like. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on the there. The green almond is what, a little bitter? Yeah, a little bitter and that little... <laughs> you know, people say, that, what's he talking uh, about? Yeah, a little pithy, high-pitched right, note right. to it that, that offsets the, the base elements of the, the apple and the melon. All right, so tell me what we would pair this with. It's mm. good pairing. It's hard not to drink it on its own, but you know, I, I would do that with some seafood. Good point. Um... What I kind would, of seafood? Oily oh, fish? No, I would do... Shellfish? I would do some shellfish. I would do maybe do some, like, some just basic shrimp. Lobster tail would be nice. Lobster, uh, Langoustine, something like that. Perfect. Don't, you know, I, I think, you know, wine and food obviously is, is why we drink wine. We want to match it with food, but I, I really try not to overthink that stuff. I just keep yeah. it simple. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Um, we like this wine. We love this wine. I love this wine. I mean, this, I, I, this was from my cellar. You said bring something. And Give me, if you can, your mm-hmm. best guesstimate retail. Uh, her wines are in the fifty to seventy dollars right. range on her. She, on her you know, yeah. she's a, a small producer. She's a bit of a rock star out there. She has some cool projects. Yeah, she you know, we're, with, we're uh, talking quality here. And pretty good value. Yeah, she worked with uh, Grace Family and, and Don Bryant, and that's and she earned her chops out in Spain, and now she's back doing her own right. own thing uh, with Keplinger. And it's a special wine. It's, and, yeah, and she, you're going to pay, and, you know, a few bucks. Yeah. We gave you the fifteen twenty dollar <laughs> wines. All right, James, we got to wrap up the show. I got to get you out of here. We got another show coming in. Okay. Um, if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or a man, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. Follow us at Instagram at SBenRuby, but follow the hashtag The Grape Nation on Twitter or at BenRuby and the hashtag The Grape Nation. Um, we ask you to subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. I think we're on Pandora now. Um, like I said, I will post James' wine list answers, and I will give you more information on our weekly wine sip and the other wine that we tried. Um, James, if we want to find you on social media and Wine Spectator, because you're kind of yep. connected at the hips, let's do each yeah, one. Yeah, no, I, I work for Wine Spectator 100%. So wine, winespectator.com is our website. Obviously, the Very magazine is out there. Very rich site. Uh, a lot going on there. and then I'm Free on, and paid. Free and paid content. Um, right. And then I'm on social media. Uh, Instagram is my, my main jam. It's jmolesworth1 on Instagram. And uh, I also uh, tweet, but um, I think Instagram is... Same thing, right? James Molesworth. James Molesworth one, yeah. And, you know, I've been following you lately, and there's a lot of great stuff. You know, there's a lot of individual wines with detail. I assume things that tickle your fancy at the time or, you know, what's going on with the gig. Yeah. I mean, besides trying to extend what you're doing, there's a lot of, you know, great information. The idea is to make wine cool and fun and there's a visual component to that and i think instagram is great and i work with uh, uh the venom collective which is a two-person group uh michelle and vanessa who who helped create some content for me and then there's my content as well and I, I think it's been working and it's been a lot of fun i think it's been great um all right i want to thank our guest james molesworth james is the uh senior editor at wine spectator magazine i want to thank our engineers we got maddie p in the box tonight um, and I want to thank everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. 
Food Radio is supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family and become a member. Thanks for listening.